0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm Mary Camario, professor of the Graduate School and chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We are pleased, um, along with the Graduate Council, to present Stephen Pinker, this year's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock lecture series. As a condition of this request, we are obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It is a story that exemplifies the many ways the campus is linked to the history of California and to the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician from, from the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush where he opened a thriving practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles. And now, a few words about Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is an experimental psychologist and one of the world's foremost writers on language, mind, and human nature. He is well known for his contributions to the field of evolutionary psychology and computational theory of mind. Pinker has conducted extensive experimental and theoretical research on the acquisition, processing, history, and neural basis of language. Pinker has also conducted research in the field of visual cognition, investigating phenomena such as the mind's ability to imagine shapes and recognize faces. His most recent research investigates the phenomena of common knowledge and how it can explain cooperation, nonverbal communication, innuendo, euphemism, and other forms of indirect speech. Pinker's 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, you see that title here, um, Why Violence Has Declined, advances the bold thesis that violence as a whole has declined over the course of world history. Drawing from a wide range of empirical data, Pinker argues that a combination of historical forces has shifted the psychological balance between motives for violence, such as exploitation, revenge, dominance, and sadism, and motives for avoiding violence, particularly empathy, self-control, moral norms, and reason. Pinker's publications range from highly technical academic works to book length projects for the general public. In 1994, he published The Language Instinct, a comprehensive account of language that uncovers its workings in a biological adaption. His 1997 book, How the Mind Works, expands the scope of the first work to include vision, reasoning, emotions, social relationship, and our response to art. He has since authored three additional books, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, and The Better Angels of Our Nature. In addition to his academic work, he is a frequent contributor to The New Republic, The New York Times, and Time Magazine. Pinker holds the title of Johnston Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. A longstanding resident of Cambridge and Boston, he received his Ph.D. from Harvard in 1976, And since then, he has held positions at both Harvard and MIT, with brief appointments at Stanford and sabbatical visits to University of California, Santa Barbara. His work has received numerous prizes from the National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Institution of Great Britain, the Cognitive Neuroscience Society, and the American Psychological Association. He holds seven honoree doctorates, and was named the 2006 Humanist of the Year by the American Humanist Association. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Pinker. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Mary. Thanks to all of you for coming. Believe it or not, and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought rates of violence down to zero, and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it is a a persistent historical development, visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the treatment of children and animals. I'm going to walk you through six major historical declines of violence, first try to identify their immediate causes, that is particular historical events of the era, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, namely general historical forces interacting with human nature. Uh, The first decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until about 6,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government, What was life like in this state of nature? This is a question that thinkers have pondered for hundreds of years. In 1651, Thomas Hobbes famously wrote that in a uh, state of nature, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing could be more gentle than man in his primitive state. Now, both of these gentlemen were speculating from the armchair. Neither of them had any idea what life was like in a state of anarchy. But today we can do better, because there are two sources of evidence on rates of violent death in non-state societies. The first is forensic archaeology. You can think of this as CSI Paleolithic. Uh, Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma, such as bashed-in skulls, decapitations, bones with arrowheads embedded in them, or mummies found with ropes around their necks. Um, I've assembled here a a list of uh, 20 of these estimates, uh, plotted in terms of percentage of uh, deaths due to uh, uh, warfare. and They span uh, quite a range, but they average out to be 15%. 15% of uh, skeletons in these samples show signs of violent trauma. Uh, Is 15% a big number or a small number? Well, let's compare it to some comparable figures from modern eras. Um, Here we have the uh, rate of death from war in Europe and the United States in the 20th century, including all of the deaths from both world wars, which uh, comes out to be two-thirds of 1%. Uh, If you try to get the upper bounded estimate, the largest plausible estimate of the number of people who died in the 20th century from wars, genocides, and man-made famines. You can push the figure up to about 3%. And here is the figure for the world in the 21st century. The bar is invisible because it is less than one pixel high with a rate of three one-hundredths of one percent. The second source of evidence on rates of violence in non-state societies comes from ethnographic vital statistics. Now, the wave of settlement and uh, government that swept over the world starting around 6,000 years ago, left a few pockets of the world still in a state of anarchy, namely hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticulturalist and other tribal societies. And ethnographers who have lived with them for long stretches of time have recorded their vital statistics, including causes of death, including uh, death by warfare and other forms of violence. Um, I've found in the the literature 27 of these estimates, and once again, they span uh, quite a range. They average out to be a little more than 500 per 100,000 per year. That is, every year, about one-half of 1% of the population dies in warfare. Uh, Again, is that a big number or a small number? Let me uh, put it into perspective by citing some modern figures and stack the deck against modernity by picking some of the most violent countries in their most violent periods. Like Germany in the 20th century with its two world wars, which comes out to a rate of 144 per 100,000 per year. Uh, Russia in the 20th century, two world wars and a civil war with a rate of 135. Japan in the 20th century, which underwent a world war that ended in two nuclear strikes with a rate of 27. United States in the 20th century, which fought two world wars and half a dozen other foreign wars with a rate of uh, 2.7. Again, if we try to get the highest possible rate for the world as a whole in the 20th century, throwing in not just the war deaths, but the uh, deaths from genocide, man-made famines, and indirect deaths from starvation and disease in the wake of war, we get a uh, rate of about uh, 60. And here is the figure for the world in the 21st century. Again, the bar is less than one pixel high. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when it comes to uh, violence in a state of nature, Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. The immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states leading and, and empires leading to the various paxes that history students read about, the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, and so on. Um, the immediate cause is that uh, tribal raiding and feuding are a nuisance to uh, imperial overlords, uh, not, that they, not that they have a benevolent interest in the welfare of their citizens, but they would just as soon keep them alive to supply them with taxes and soldiers and slaves. So just as a farmer has a selfish interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other, he doesn't really care what they're fighting about, and it's just a dead loss to him. So the first kings and emperors tried to pacify the territories that they uh, conquered. Now, the second decline of violence can be con- appreciated by considering this woodcut showing a typical day in the life in the Middle Ages. And the process that brought this mayhem under control has been called the civilizing process. turns out that in many parts of Europe, data on homicide go back uh, literally 800 years, and historical criminologists have uh, plotted them over time when they have found them. This is a uh, set of homicide estimates from the year 1200 to the year 2000, once again plotted in terms of number of Uh, deaths per 100,000 per year. Uh, In this case, the scale is logarithmic, from a tenth of a homicide per 100,000 per year, to one, to ten, to a hundred. And as you can see, there's been a massive decline in the rate of homicide in England, so that a contemporary Englishman has about one thirty-fifth the chance of being murdered as his medieval ancestors. This is true not just in England, but in every country for which data are available. Here we have comparable data for Germany and Switzerland, Netherlands, Italy, and Scandinavia. Here I've averaged those five regions in Western Europe, uh, and for the sake of comparison I've also included that 524 per 100,000 per year figure from the average of non-state societies. So this gap is pretty much what I call the pacification process, and this further decline the civilizing process. Uh, I borrowed the term from a classic book by the German sociologist Norbert Elias, who argued that in the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity, there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms out of the patchwork quilt of duchies and baronies and principalities that had um, polka-dotted Europe. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant feuding and brigandage and warlording of medieval knights gradually gave way to the king's justice. Also during this era, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce. There were financial instruments like money and contracts that could be recognized within the boundaries of the newly consolidated states. And there were physical improvements to the infrastructure of trade, such as better roads and carts and instruments of timekeeping. As a result, Elias argued, zero-sum plunder began to give way to positive-sum trade. And that's an idea that I'll return to Uh, at the end of the talk as I try to wrap things up. The third decline of violence can be appreciated by recalling some of the ways that the early kings and emperors kept law and order within their borders, namely uh, sadistic forms of corporal and capital punishment, such as breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing with iron hooks, sawing in half, and impalement. But in a development that's been called the Humanitarian Revolution, region after region abolished these forms of uh, sadistic punishment. Here we have a timeline of uh, uh, countries or empires that abolished um, torture as a form of capital punishment, um, including... uh, our own country in the famous Eighth Amendment prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, which occurred in the midst of this process, concentrated in the uh, second half of the 18th century, a a process that that in part has been documented by the historian Lynn Hunt, who I believe is uh, here at Berkeley. Also abolished during this period was the profligate use of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the books, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies, and, quote, strong evidence of malice in a child 7 to 14 years of age. By 1861, the number of capital crimes in England had been reduced to 4. Uh, similarly, in 17th and 18th century Uh, United States, the death penalty was prescribed and used for theft, sodomy, bestiality, adultery, witchcraft, concealing birth, slave revolt, and counterfeiting. There are in this country uh, capital punishment uh, um, geeks who uh, keep databases of every execution that has ever taken place in the United States, uh, including the colonies prior to 1776 I've taken one of their data sets and plotted uh, the percentage of executions in the United States for crimes other than murder from 1650 to 2000. As you can see in the colonial period uh, and the early days of the Republic, a majority of executions were for crimes other than murder. Uh, Now the only crime punished uh, by death other than murder is conspiracy to commit murder. Now, the death penalty itself, of course, has been abolished in every Western democracy but the United States. Um, Here, we have a timeline of the uh, European countries with capital punishment on the books. Um, Now, most of the abolitions were actually in the 20th century, but if you look at the blue timeline, it shows the number of European countries that actually de facto carry out executions, showing that well before European politicians got around to striking capital punishment from the law books, their countrymen had pretty much lost their taste for putting people to death. And on average, 50 years elapsed uh, between the last actual execution in a European country and the formal abolition. Now, I mentioned that the United States is a notorious uh, exception, or more accurately, Uh, 32 of the 50 states are uh, exceptions because the uh, general trend in the United States is for state after state to abolish capital punishment. Over the course of writing Better Angels, uh, I had to revise the number of American states that have capital punishment three times because of abolitions just in the last five years. Uh, But even putting aside the number of states that have uh, capital punishment, Uh, the number of people who are actually executed has been in precipitous decline. Uh, Again, this graph goes from 1625 to the year 2000, showing a number of American executions per capita. For all its notoriety, uh, every year in this country about 40 people are put to death in a country that has more than 16,000 homicides every year. Also abolished during the humanitarian revolution were witch hunts, religious persecution, such as burning heretics, Dueling among men of honor, blood sports like bear baiting, debtors' prisons, and most famously of all, slavery. Slavery used to be legal everywhere on earth. No one seemed to think there was anything particularly wrong with it. Uh, The Bible had no problem with slavery. So-called democratic Athens was a slave-holding society. But beginning uh, with the second half of the 18th century, there was a trickle of abolitions that grew into a flood that eventually encompassed the entire world, uh, culminating in 1962 when Saudi Arabia and um, Yemen abolished slavery, and finally, 1980, Mauritania became the last country on earth to allow slavery as a legal institution. So for the last three decades, we've been living in an unprecedented period in human history in which slavery has been illegal everywhere on earth. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? Well, a plausible hypothesis is affluence. Perhaps as people's lives become more pleasant, thanks to the advances in uh, technology, uh, people put a higher value on their own lives and by extension on the lives of others. Um, I think this is a plausible hypothesis, but the timing doesn't really work because economic historians tell us that uh, the, an increase in material well-being only really started to take off in the 19th century with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, whereas most of these humanitarian reforms took place in the 18th century. You can't see the uh, lines that I've drawn here. They're a little bit too faint, but uh, during this period, there's virtually no real economic growth, and that's when people started to realize that uh, burning heretics and smashing people's arms and limbs on a wheel may not be the best way to run a society. I think that uh, another hypothesis, um, one that in in part advanced by uh, Lynn Hunt here at Berkeley, is more plausible, and that the uh, rise of printing and literacy at least antedated the humanitarian revolution and therefore is a more plausible hypothesis about its cause. Uh, Prior to the 18th century, there was a a 25-fold increase in the economic efficiency in producing books. It's the only industry that showed an increase in efficiency prior to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, This technology was put into practice, and in the 18th century, there was an exponential increase in the number of books published per decade, a kind of early version of Moore's Law. And in the 18th century, for the first time, a majority of uh, Europeans could read those books. This was the era in which literacy rate uh, first, surpassed the 50% mark. Why should literacy matter? Well, there's another era, uh, name for this era. It's also called the Enlightenment, because this was the era in which knowledge began to replace superstition and ignorance. And it's uh, not implausible that a literate and educated populace is less likely to believe in uh, nonsense, such as that the Jews poison the wells, heretics go to hell, crop failures are caused by witches. Children are possessed by the devil, which has to be beaten out of them. Africans are brutish and fit only for slavery, uh, and that's bound to undermine many rationales for violence. As Voltaire said during this era, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, as uh, Hunt points out, literacy is a technology of cosmopolitanism, of the mixing of people and ideas. And it is uh, not implausible, I'll return to this later in the talk, that the consumption of fiction and drama and history and journalism gets people into the habit of uh, inhabiting other people's minds. They try to imagine what it's like to be someone else. And conceivably, that could lead to less dehumanization, uh, less cruelty, and an expanded sense of empathy. Okay, the fourth historical decline of violence has been called the Long Peace, and it speaks to the frequently made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. One reads this all the time, it's a popular meme, but uh, it turns out that there are no data in support of it, that um, no one cites numbers from any other century, uh, so this is a trend based on one point. Uh, And in fact, there are many reasons to doubt that it is true. Even looking at the so-called peaceful 19th century, which is often held up uh, by comparison as more peaceful than the 20th century, the case is not so clear. The so-called peaceful 19th century had the Napoleonic Wars, the, the, uh, uh, after the World Wars, the most destructive war in European history with 4 million deaths. The Taiping Rebellion in China, the most destructive civil war in history with 20 million The most destructive war in American history took place in the 19th century, namely the American Civil War. In Africa, we have the conquests of Shaka Zulu, which killed perhaps one to two million people. In South America, we have the most destructive interstate war in history, proportionally speaking, the War of the Triple Alliance, which may have killed 60% of the population of Paraguay. Uh, Not to uh, mention slave-raiding wars in Africa and imperial wars in Africa, Asia, and the South Pacific, for which numbers aren't even available. Also, while it is undoubtedly true that uh, the worst event in the 20th century, World War II, was the deadliest event in human history in terms of absolute number of people killed, it's not so clear that it was the worst in history in terms of the percentage of the world's population that was affected. A lot of people were killed in World War II but there were a lot of people around in in, uh, in those days as well. Um, Here I've taken a data set from a man who calls himself an atrocitologist, Matthew White, uh, from his book, The Great Big Book of Horrible Things. And it includes an appendix Uh, consisting of the hundred worst things that people have ever done to uh, one another, and I've just scaled them by the population of the world at the midpoint of the atrocity. It goes from 500 BCE to 2000 CE, and uh, as as you can see, history's worst atrocities were pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Uh, World War II comes in at ninth place. World War I doesn't even make the top ten. Now, you can can't fail to notice the data cloud funnels downward as you get closer to the present. But presumably this doesn't mean that in ancient times they only committed really big atrocities, and more recently we've been committing medium-sized and small-sized ones as well. Much more likely this is a reflection of the historical record, namely that uh, the farther back you go, the more likely it is that the small stuff would not have been uh, recorded by historians and passed down to the present. If we um, look at the put a magnifying glass in the last 500 years, the era of the uh, uh, printing press for which the data are more complete, we can take a finer grain look at trends in uh, war. In particular, great power war. These are the wars between the 800-pound gorillas of the day, the states that have the capacity to project military force beyond their own boundaries, and the political scientist Jack Levy has assembled such a, a, a data set. Um, The first graph shows, from the year 1500 to the present, the proportion of years that the great powers fought each other, uh, the clashes of the titans. And it shows that uh, several centuries ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other. That's just what great powers did. They fought other great powers. More recently, they've hardly ever been at war with each other. Here we have a graph showing the duration of wars involving a great power on uh, at least one side, Uh, and it shows a uh, decline in how long wars lasted. History used to have things like the uh, 30 years war and the 80 years war and the 100 years war. The 20th century had the six-day war. Um, here we have a graph showing the frequency of wars involving a great power. How often would a great power pick a fight that resulted in a war? And that has been in a decline over 500 years. There is, however, one trend that went in the opposite direction over most of this period that is, once a great power did start a war, how good at it how good <coughs> was it at killing lots of people uh, quickly? That is, what is the rate of uh, death per country per war per year, and because of advances, I guess if you could call them that in military organization and weaponry, wars got <coughs> when they did break out, got deadlier and deadlier up to the climax of World War II, at which even this curve does a U-turn, and for the last uh, two-thirds of a century, wars have become uh, less deadly, as well as being shorter and uh, less frequent. Uh, If you multiply these figures together and just look at the aggregate number of people killed in great power wars, and I should mention, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier, an important statistical fact about the distribution of deaths in wars is that the Biggest wars kill uh, the most people. That is, once you account for the great power wars, you've accounted for a majority of all the people who are killed in all wars combined, including the smaller ones. Well, here's what you get. You get kind of a zigzaggy curve, but one for, whom the, for which the uh, lowest point in 500 years is the most recent quarter century. Um, we can then zoom in on the last hundred years for which the data are richer yet again, being closer to the present. and here is a look at the 20th century and the first decade of the 21st century. Uh, there is no question that there were two horrific spikes of bloodshed in the 20th century centered around the two world wars, but far from being a uh, crescendo that would lead to an even worse war uh, since World War II, the bottom has kind of fallen out and the curve uh, bumps along the uh, uh, x-axis. This is the period that historians have called the long peace, the fact that since 1946 there's been a historically unprecedented decline in interstate war, wars with a government on each side. In fact, the most interesting statistic from this period is zero That refers to the number of wars between the two greatest powers of them all, the United States and the Soviet Union, which uh, never fought a direct war against each other. Contrary, as those of us who remember this era, um, contrary to every expert who predicted that World War III between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was inevitable, but it never happened. No nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki, again, Contrary to every expert prediction that a, a thermonuclear world war was just a matter of time. There have been no wars between any two great powers since 1953, more than 50 years ago at the end of the uh, Korean War. Uh, 60 years ago, I'm sorry. There have been no wars between any two Western European countries since 1945. A fact that we almost take for granted as banal and obvious. Like, you know, who would ever expect, say, Germany and France to fight a war? Uh, but needless to say, this is a historically highly unusual state of affairs. Prior to 1945, Western European countries alone started two new wars for 600 years. As of 1945, that fell to zero. And there have been no wars between developed countries for the last two-thirds of a century. The 44 countries with the highest GDP per capita have not fought a war against each other. Again, that if that sounds obvious to you, like... You know, war is, that's the kind of thing that happens in those poor backward southern hemisphere kind of countries. Uh, That shows the magnitude of the historical change. For much much of human history, it was the big rich countries that were constantly at each other's throats. And because big rich countries can afford big destructive armies, they could rack up uh, an awful lot of deaths quickly. Uh, Well, what about the rest of the world? I've spoken about great power wars, I've spoken about wars involving rich countries, Um, but in a development that I call the new peace, the long peace seems to be spreading to the rest of the world. Now, since 1946, as I've mentioned, there have been fewer interstate wars, country against country. There have, however, been more civil wars, starting in the 1960s, a trend that went in the opposite direction, as newly independent states with inept governments defended themselves against insurgent movements, with both sides armed, financed, and egged on by the uh, U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, But after the Cold War, the number of civil wars declined as well. So the question is, which wars kill more people? The interstate wars, which have been uh, petering out, or the civil wars, which grew and then uh, began to recede during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And this graph uh, gives you the answer. First, I'm showing you uh, a number of bars that correspond to the rate of death in interstate wars, country against country, in each decade from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Here we have the corresponding figure for internationalized civil wars, civil wars in which some third party uh, butts in, usually to help the government defend itself. And here we have the rate of death from purely internal civil wars. So as you can see, the uh, decline in the death rate from interstate wars has not been uh, compensated for by nearly as much of an increase in the death rate from civil wars. What if you then uh, put these together, the number of wars of each kind multiplied by the deadliness of each war? Well, here's a a graph showing the overall trajectory of deaths in wars of all kinds put together, and it's a stacked layer graph where the thickness of each layer corresponds to the rate of death from war in uh, one of each of four categories, and the height of the entire stack shows the proportion of the world's population that's killed in all wars combined. So first we have colonial wars where a European empire tried to hang on to its colonies and that uh, tapered off to zero in the 1970s. Here are the uh, deaths from interstate wars, country against country, with spikes corresponding to the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. Here we have the rate of death from purely internal civil wars and from internationalized civil wars. So we have something of a roller coaster with a number of local reversals, but the overall trajectory has been downward. And here we are in the 21st century with uh, a thin laminate of layers of wars of all kind showing that we're living in an era in which uh, fewer people than ever before are dying in war. Now, uh, what about uh, in the last... Uh, Five years The uh, 2008 was the year with the last figures that were available to me When I sent uh, my book Better Angels of Our Nature off to the publishers I've recently updated the uh, graph with uh, more recent figures uh, Addressing the concern that with the Arab Spring and the wars in its wake Particularly the civil war in Syria Have we seen a uh, reversal And the answer is that we have a little bit See this little uptick here That reflects the number of deaths from, uh, among other things, the uh, Civil War in Syria. But overall, it doesn't come anywhere close to reversing the long-term trend since the end of World War II. Well, what were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Uh, Three of them were advanced uh, more than two centuries ago by Immanuel Kant in his essay, Perpetual Peace, in which he argued that democracy, international trade, and an international community all disincentivized leaders from dragging their countries into stupid wars. More recently, the political scientists Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypotheses quantitatively in a large data set of militarized disputes, and they argue that the data showed that Kant got it right three out of three times, that all three of these factors have increased over the course of the second half of the 20th century, and all of them are statistical predictors of peace down the line holding constant every other conceivable variable. Uh, The final decline of violence I call the rights revolutions, and this refers to the targeting of violence on smaller scales directed against vulnerable sectors of the population, such as African Americans and other racial minorities, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The civil rights revolution, first of all, put end to the practice of lynching. Uh, Lynchings used to take place in this country at a rate of 150 a year. That's uh, three a week at the end of the 19th century. Uh, By the 1950s, that rate had fallen to zero. More recently, the FBI has been keeping track of hate crime uh, 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 violence directed against African Americans, uh, such as intimidation and assault. And all three have been in decline since... Records were first kept in the 90s. Uh, and the kind of racist attitudes that licensed uh, violence against minorities has also been in steady decline. This graph shows the results of two sets of um, uh, opinion polls asking white Americans the question, do you believe that black and white students should go to separate schools? And if a black family moved in next door, would you move out? In the 1940s, a majority of people favored red, uh racial segregation, and uh, close to a majority would move out if a black family moved next door. That has been steady decline to the point that uh, the positive results fall into the range of crank opinion, and the pollsters have just eliminated the question from their surveys. Uh, This is not just an American phenomenon, but may be part of a worldwide trend. This graph shows the number of countries that have apartheid or Jim Crow laws on their books that discriminate against their ethnic minorities. The blue line shows the number of countries that bend over backwards in the other direction and that have various affirmative action or remedial discrimination policies designed to boost their uh, disadvantaged minorities. And so for the last few years, there have been more countries whose laws uh, favor their minorities than countries that discriminate against them. The women's rights movement has brought about an 80% reduction in the rate of rape since statistics were first kept in the 1970s, a similarly precipitous decline in rates of domestic violence against women, and declines in the most extreme form of domestic violence of all, namely axoricide, the murder of female romantic partners, and meridicide, the murder of male romantic partners. If anything, the decline is even steeper for male victims than for female victims, showing that the women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. The children's rights movement has seen a steady decline in the use of corporal punishment in schools, strapping and uh, paddling, where uh, now a minority of states, concentrated in the South, even uh, allow the practice. Public opinion polls that um, ask people whether it is acceptable to spank a child have all shown uh, declines. Rates of child abuse are down, both physical abuse and sexual abuse, and rates of uh, violence, such uh, in which children are victims, such as fights and non-fatal crimes in schools. The gay rights movement has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality, not just states uh, worldwide, but American states, which now stands at 50 out of 50, thanks to a Supreme Court decision. Anti-gay attitudes, such as is homosexuality morally wrong, Uh, should it be criminalized and should gay people be denied equal opportunity, have all shown uh, steady declines. Uh, And the animal rights movement, finally, has seen a uh, decline in hunting, an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, and a sharp decline in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. Well, this raises the question, why has violence declined on so many scales of uh, time and magnitude? Now, one possibility is that human nature has changed, and somehow our Violent inclinations have literally been bred out of us. Well, I consider this uh, hypothesis uh, coherent, but empirically unlikely. Uh, For one thing, we continue to see violence in uh, children. uh, Almost half of two-year-olds kick, bite, and hit, and -and rough-and-tumble play is one of the most robust uh, sex differences observed cross-culturally. Our grown-up children uh, continue to enjoy various forms of vicarious violence, such as murder mysteries, Greek tragedies, Shakespearean dramas, video games, hockey, and uh, movies starring a certain ex-governor of this very state. And then there are homicidal fantasies. A number of psychologists have uh, posed the following question to their subjects. Have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? And the results are that about 15% of women and a third of men frequently fantasize about killing people. And about uh, 60% of women and three quarters of men at least occasionally fantasize about killing people. What does this tell us about human nature? It tells us that 25% of men are liars. (laughs) A more likely possibility is that human nature is extraordinarily complex and it has always included both uh, neural systems that incline us toward violence and neural systems that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln poetically called the better angels of our nature, and that what has changed over the course of history is that circumstances have increasingly increasingly favored our peaceable motives. Well, what are the motives for violence? Uh, Neurobiologists have known for quite some time that there is no single thing called aggression, that there are multiple systems in the brain uh, behind violent acts. Anyone who owns a a cat knows that when a cat is uh, preparing for predation, it will quietly stalk a a mouse or a uh, cockroach or maybe even a hallucination uh, and uh, keep low to the ground, exhibit quiet stalking behavior, a sudden pounce and a quick bite. Whereas when one male cat not neutered encounters another male uh, cat, you get a kind of aggression that couldn't be more different. There's a lot of piloerection and uh, hissing and yowling and then uh, perhaps what we call a a cat fight. And we know that these uh, two forms of uh, uh, aggression are controlled by different circuits in the brain. Um, Stepping back and looking at the number of motives for violence in humans, um, there are four major ones that I try to lay out in the book. There's just sheer, raw, naked exploitation, the uh, harming of a person that happens to be an obstacle on the path to something that you want, resulting in forms of violence such as rape, plunder, conquest, and the elimination of rivals. Very different is the drive for dominance, the urge among individuals to climb the pecking order and become uh, alpha male, and a corresponding motive among groups for ethnic, racial, national, or religious supremacy. There's revenge or moralistic violence, the urge to, uh, and the, the a conviction that it is not just permissible but mandatory to harm someone who's committed a moral infraction, not to let them get away with it, which results in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishment. And then moving from the level of the individual to the social network, there are utopian ideologies, ideas, or memes that spread from mind to mind that can often license vast amounts of violence, such as militant religions, nationalism. Nazism, and Communism, which license this violence by kind of pernicious cost-benefit analysis. What these ideologies have in common is that they hold out the prospect of a utopia, of a world that will be infinitely good forever. Well, if uh, you are under the throes of uh, the conviction that such a utopia is possible— the ends are infinitely good, well, then you can commit as much violence as you want to bring that kingdom of heaven to earth, and you're always on the positive side of the ledger. You're always doing more good than harm. And let's say that you announce your vision of an infinitely perfect world, and there's some people who just don't buy it. They don't get with the program. How evil are they? Well, they're the only thing standing in the way of a world that will be infinitely good forever. Uh, Well, you do the math as to how much punishment they deserve. As in the old uh, communist slogan, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, uh, which, of course, ignores the fact that people are not eggs. But it does uh, explain the uh, somewhat uh, superficially paradoxical fact that the worst atrocities in human history were all carried out in uh, pursuit of a moral, higher idealistic good. Well, that sounds pretty depressing, but what do we have on the other side? What uh, circuits do we have in the uh, human brain that can push back against our violent impulses? Well, there's self-control systems in the prefrontal cortex that can anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit our violent impulses. There's empathy, uh, the ability to feel others' pain, probably underlain by the uh, oxytocin system. There's the moral sense, a set of norms and taboos that govern just what a decent person uh, considers uh, within the realm of possibility. And there's reason, cognitive processes that allow us to engage in objective, detached analysis. Well, having laid out that um, psychology of violence and nonviolence, the question now is how do you bring the psychology back together with the history? Which historical developments bring out our better angels and stay our hands before they can commit acts of bloodshed? Uh, One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a Leviathan, a government with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Now, a state and judicial system with a monopoly on violence can reduce actual outbreaks of violence by, first of all, neutralizing the incentive for exploitative attack by penalizing aggression and therefore canceling out the aggressor's anticipated gain. That can then calm everyone down because uh, not only are you deterred from attacking your neighbors, but you know that your neighbors are deterred from attacking you. And so it eliminates the temptation for a preemptive strike to do it to them before they do it to you. For... um, Broadcasting a uh, belligerent stance of uh, macho strength in order to establish the credibility of your deterrent and of course eliminates the need to carry out revenge after the fact. You can outsource it to the uh, state and its judicial apparatus. And in doing so, you're not just trading one kind of violence for another, because outsourcing revenge to a third party means that you are circumventing the self-serving biases that social psychologists have shown that uh, all humans are prone to, where in any dispute, both sides always believe that their opponents' attacks are unprovoked aggression out of the blue, whereas their own attacks are justified retaliation after the fact. Well, when you have both sides in the throes of these self-serving illusions, uh, one side can count an uh, odd number of attacks and feel that justice must be done, another counts an even number and figures that uh, the scores have all been settled, and that can lead to endless cycles of uh, blood feud and vendetta, cycles which can be nipped in the bud when it is a disinterested third party that is uh, assessing the harm and meeting out the punishment. Some historical evidence comes from the pacifying and civilizing effects of states that I alluded to uh, in historical trends number one and two. And the fact that you can watch this movie uh, in reverse in when uh, government breaks down and uh, zones of anarchy emerge, such as the American Wild West, where they, you all remember the cliche in the cowboy movies that the nearest sheriff is 120 miles away, so you've got to defend yourself with your six-shooter. In failed states, coll- collapsed empires, and contraband economies like mafias and street gangs, where uh, you can't file a lawsuit if you think you've been cheated in a deal, uh, you can't dial 911 if you think you've been, uh, uh, feel threatened. The only protection is a willingness uh, and ability to commit violence to protect your interests. And in all of these cases of zones of anarchy, you have uh, quite obviously. Uh, high rates of violence. A second possibility is the theory of gentle commerce, du commerce, an idea from the Enlightenment that argues that plunder is a uh, zero-sum game. The uh, victor's gain is the victim's loss, whereas trade is a positive-sum game. If you exchange your surpluses, then as we say, everybody wins. And as over the course of history, improving technology has allowed goods and ideas to be traded over longer distances among larger groups of people and at lower cost, it becomes cheaper to buy things than to steal them, and other people become more valuable to you alive than dead. Um, And there is some historical evidence for this hypothesis, a number of statistical studies that show that companies with open economies and a greater dependence on international trade fight fewer wars, uh, host fewer civil wars, and uh, have fewer genocides, holding all other factors constant. A third hypothesis has been called the expanding circle in a book by that name by the philosopher Peter Singer, but the idea goes back to Charles Darwin, namely that humans are come equipped by natural selection with a sense of empathy. Unfortunately, by default, we apply our empathy only within a very narrow circle of friends and families and cute, fuzzy little baby animals. But over the course of history, one can see the circle expanding to the village, the clan, the tribe, the nation, other races, both races, children, and perhaps eventually other species. Well, this just uh, begs the question of why should the circle have expanded? And I think the technologies of increased cosmopolitanism are a uh, plausible cause. That as people travel more, consume more history, more literature and drama, and more journalism... Uh, they are uh, less likely to dehumanize people unlike themselves and more likely to uh, imagine what it 's like to be them and have less of a taste for uh, for harming them and There is experimental evidence that when people adopt a real Person's perspective, or for that matter, the perspective of, of a fictional character, they show more sympathy both to that individual and to the category that that individual represents. A number of uh, social psychology experiments have uh, replicated that finding. Finally, there's the escalator of reason, the possibility that the growth of literacy, education, and public discourse has encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. Uh, We rise above our parochial vantage point. That makes it harder to privilege your own interests over others just because you're you and they're not. It encourages people to stand back and recognize the futility of cycles of violence and increasingly see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Some historical evidence comes from the fact that, uh, again, believe it or not, abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by uh, IQ, increased over the course of the 20th century, the so-called Flynn effect, by which IQ scores increased by three points a uh, decade throughout the 20th century and all over the world. And other studies have shown that people and societies with higher degrees of education and measured intelligence commit fewer crimes, cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to uh, homophobia, uh, racism, and xenophobia, and are more receptive to democracy 10 years down the line. The final question I'll ask is, uh, why would these and other forces all be pushing in the same direction? Why should there be not just one, but several historical developments that all result in lower rates of violence? Now, I don't believe in any mysterious, uh, mystical arc of history or or dialectic or um, uh, push toward an omega point of perfect peace. Um, Rather, I think that violence is what game theorists call a social dilemma. Namely, it's tempting to an aggressor to exploit a victim, but of course the harm done to the victim is greater than the gains enjoyed by the aggressor. Since in the long run, victims become aggressors and vice versa, all parties would objectively be better off if everyone could agree to refrain from violence. The dilemma is, how do you get the other guy to refrain from violence at the same time that you do? Because if you beat your swords into plowshares, but the other guy keeps his swords as swords, well, you could find yourself at the wrong end of of an invading army. It's not implausible to think that over the course of history, human experience and human ingenuity have gradually chipped away at this problem, just as we've dealt with other scourges of the human condition, like pestilence and hunger, and the common denominator behind these four pacifying forces is that all of them increase the material, emotional, or cognitive incentives of all parties to avoid violence simultaneously. Regardless of what the best explanation of the decline of violence turns out to be, I think it has implications that are profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts towards violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. Instead of lamenting, why is there war, perhaps the question we should be asking is, why is there peace? Not just, what are we doing wrong, but what have we been doing right? because we have been doing something right, and it seems to me to be quite important to figure out what exactly it is. Also, the decline of violence, I think, calls for a reassessment of modernity, of the centuries-long trend that has eroded family, tribe, tradition, and religion, and uh, giving way to individual rights, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. Now, everyone has to acknowledge that modernity has brought us many gifts, longer and healthier lives, less ignorance and superstition, richer experiences, but there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that has questioned the price. Is it worth it if we have to live in the shadow of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? On the other hand, if despite impressions, the long-term trend, though Uh, Halting and incomplete is that violence of all kinds is decreasing. I believe this calls for a rehabilitation of the ideals of modernity and progress, and it's a cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you very much. Thank you.